Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Ford government announced its back-to-school plan yesterday, and to no one's surprise, not everybody is happy. What's missing from the plan and what works? Well, we'll talk about that. During the next provincial election, former Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation President Harvey Bishop is set to run for the NDP in the riding of Brantford Brant. Could he help the NDP win that seat back? And what exactly did President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau talk about in their latest phone call? Elliot Tepper, professor of political science with Carleton University, will join us to discuss it. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. What's going on with uh, the back-to-school program? Yesterday, the uh, Ford government made their announcement about the uh, protocol and the rules and regulations that are going to be in place. Not everybody's happy about that, and we're going to talk about that in just a couple of seconds uh, because there are some concerns about exactly what the province is suggesting. It's a 26-page document released with fanfare and announcements, as governments will want to do. But as Global's Dave Woodard reports, uh, not everybody is ecstatic about this. Back to in-school classes for everyone grades K to 12, but masking will remain mandatory for everyone besides those in kindergarten. Certain exceptions will be made for outside low-contact phys ed classes and while eating or drinking in school. Some of the other guidelines include self-screening before class, as it was last year, but the province may direct schools and boards to conduct on-site screening after a period of high community transmission like coming back to class after a holiday. What's not included in the document is how students and staff are to deal with being off sick due to COVID. There are no policies in this plan that suggest how long a student will be off if they test positive or if it might be different depending on whether a person is vaccinated or not. Dave Woodard, Global News. Vaccination, now there's the rub. Uh, A great deal of concern about that. Other jurisdictions have uh, gone a step further, uh, probably a couple of steps further than the Ontario government seems to want to go when it comes to uh, vaccinations. Uh, Joining us to talk about this and uh, get the lay of the land as to how this is actually going to impact uh, going back to school, pleased to welcome back to the program Ryan Imgren, biostatistician who's been uh, studying and uh, analyzing uh, what's going on with COVID and some of the protocols and, uh, well, the results of it as well. Ryan, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time again today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Right off the top, what, what's your reaction, your, your analysis of what the government's proposing here? Is, is it good enough? Does it go far enough? No, it doesn't. I think, you know, what we've seen in the past, Ontario schools have been closed longer than most other jurisdictions in the whole entire world, and yet this plan is more of the same. If the old plan led to school closures that lasted 20 weeks, why are we sticking with a plan that was so unsuccessful? And that's really what this is. This is more of the old plan, hygiene theater, sanitization, very little focus on ventilation, and a frighteningly almost zero reliance on vaccination. That's the thing that jumped out at me. And I, I, for the love of me, I cannot figure this out. I'm, I'm trying to cut these guys some slack and say, okay, maybe, you know, they, they've got some analysis. But we just heard uh, just a couple of seconds ago before you joined us, Dr. Peter Uni from the science table saying, look, it's, it's not good enough. He says, if my son's going to school and there's 70% of the population that's vaccinated, I don't feel safe. And, and, the, and the, the government's announcement yesterday, Ryan, I'll paraphrase it, basically seemed we'd like you to get vaccinated. But if you don't, well, you know, well, that's okay, too. It's not okay. No, it's not. And I think, you know, what What I'd really like to get across about this plan is this. There are three sentences, yes, three sentences addressing vaccines. There is two sentences addressing, like, accidental ingestion of hand sanitizer. Why are we clumping those two things together? We should be formally looking at vaccinations um, and saying that they need to be mandated for education workers 
and either mandated for students or highly, highly encouraged for students. And if not, we need to treat vaccinated students differently than unvaccinated students. So there's a carrot for those students to get uh, like vaccinated so that we can keep everyone safe and we can keep schools open. This is one of the things that I, I, I'm just, you know, I, I, I'm knocked off my sit about because there, there are two elements here that I thought should have happened. And when we talked about the initial rollout of the vaccine earlier this year, we talked about, you know, the frontline workers who are going to be the ones that were going to be vaccinated first. And we thought, great idea, let's do that. But I'm hearing more and more uh, teachers and healthcare workers that are saying, no, we don't want the vaccine. I, I can't understand that. This is the immediate safeguard and the ultimate safeguard against this pandemic or against this virus. Uh, why did they simply make this optional? Yeah, and and I really, really don't understand that. I mean, I'm looking at this from a like parent's perspective. Wouldn't you feel much more comfortable sending your child back to school if you knew that the education professional that was in the room with them, that the administrative staff that they would be working with, the secretarial staff, the, the cleaning staff, were all vaccinated? If the adults in the building were all vaccinated, it would make for a much, much safer environment for everybody. It's not foolproof. Nothing is in medicine, and nothing is in life, I suppose you could make that argument. But it's going that extra step. It's it's using the tools that are available to us. I mean, a year ago, you and I were talking about this, and we were just bemoaning the fact that, God, if we only had a vaccine, things would be so much better. We've got it now, and I can't understand why they're simply not saying you are an essential worker. You're going to be in constant contact with children who probably aren't vaccinated, especially in the elementary school circumstance. You've got to be vaccinated. That's all there is to it. Yet they don't seem to want to take that step exactly and it's also frightening too because we're allowing students if they want to choose remote learning and if they choose remote learning they have to do remote learning for the whole entire school year so if there was a teacher that for medical reasons was not able to be vaccinated what we could do in that situation is okay that's fine you have to teach remotely for the whole year because you're not going to be vaccinated Um, so there's you know even ways to get around the fact that there may be some people who they can't be vaccinated. And that's why it's so troubling that we're not mandating this. But I think it's even more concerning that we even have two like political parties that, you know, like don't want mandated vaccines for education workers. It's the PCs and also the NDPs that for some reason don't want mandatory vaccinations for education workers. And I think that's very, very troubling. There's another element to this, too, that I'm just trying to connect some dots here. Pre-pandemic, let's let's go back to those those days. I think a few of us still may remember uh, what happened back in, in those situations. Was it not a, a rule within the boards of education and within the Ministry of Education that children had to be vaccinated before they could go to school? Not not with the, not with this vaccine, not with something to do with COVID. But I mean, they had to get their booster shots. You know, the measles, rubella, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And if you didn't, uh, you weren't allowed to attend class. I mean, that's that's pretty stark. But I mean, that was the rule, was it not? Yeah, and I think there was something. Like, there is still something like nine different vaccines that you have to have. And I know that when it comes down to the high school level, if you don't have a vaccine, they're going to call you down and say, look, if you don't get this vaccine in the next 48 hours, you're going to be suspended from school. So they've actually taken action on those mandatory vaccinations when, you know, um, students haven't actually followed through and were actually vaccinated. So, yeah, we've had mandatory vaccines in schools. And I just really, for the life of me, don't understand why this isn't a mandated vaccine for education workers and maybe even students as well.
because the back the and we all know about the, the boosters and we all know about the vaccines that are available against against polio rubella and things of this nature uh, and those that's mandatory that they said look at you know there's a concern because if nobody's going to get those vaccinations there's a chance that these things could flare up again and we've seen that happen in other parts of the world uh, but in this circumstance ryan uh we're dealing with a covid virus we're dealing with a delta variant which we're told is is scaring the daylights out of the healthcare professionals to use the old tom clancy phrase if i could this is a clear and present danger and and the the governments don't seem to want to take that step the necessary step to to cover our yeah and you know what and that's it and i think what's interesting is if we look at the case count from yesterday there was around 164 cases i think it was 164 cases yesterday of those 164 cases what modeling suggests is that 23 of those cases were in fully vaccinated people. That means that 141 cases, or almost 85% of the cases that we saw yesterday, were in the unvaccinated population. And the unvaccinated population is about 40% of our population right now. They're making up the, you know, most of the cases that we have. These vaccines work. They're highly, highly effective. And that's why it's so troubling that we're simply negating the fact that they work well and we're not having them mandated for inside of schools. The other element, too, and we've already heard from uh, some of the folks that had offered advice uh, to to the government as to how this was going to roll out, and, and this sounds like deja vu all over again, Ryan. Uh, you know, the Sick Kids Hospital and a number of other uh, agencies said, "Look, at, you've got to do something about class sizes here." They haven't really addressed that. As a matter of fact, they've they've pretty much ignored that every time they've tried to set these regulations. Uh, they simply said there's going to be social distancing in place, but they're still going to be crowding probably more students than there should be into a classroom. Yeah, exactly. And for someone who was the consulted, even on the most recent return of guidelines by the Ontario Science Table um, and also by Sick Kids, I was very, very clear that when I saw the original guidelines that I wanted vaccination and ventilation moved up front, not the, that focus on hand hygiene that we've always seen. And, you know, it's, it's something that it's, it's scary how much of a reliance we still have on hand hygiene. I could understand it in the plan from last year. It made sense because we didn't really understand the airborne component of COVID-19 last year, but now we do. And we also have vaccinations. Vaccination, ventilation, those should be the two key pillars of any return to school plan. And then you may want to possibly add in antigen testing if you want to get back to normal and you want to have things like extracurricular activities uh, like up and running again in a safe manner. And I know that they tried to cover their, their, their butts on this by simply saying, well, you know, uh, you should self-test if you feel as if you've got symptoms. Well, what, what, what about the people that are asymptomatic that are still carrying it? There's yeah. no way they're going to know that they're carrying it. Right. And I think, you know, what we've seen worldwide, and we've seen, um, you know, the concerts do this. We even saw that Muskoka was camp do this. They had like, testing beforehand. But unfortunately, even with having testing 72 hours before an event takes place, still not 100% foolproof. You need to have layers of protection in place. And I think in that situation, knowing that COVID is airborne, we need to have vaccinations, we need to have better ventilation, we need to have masking that you know relies on what the you know numbers actually are, and we need to have testing. And if numbers are high, we need to have frequent testing. If numbers are low, we can have infrequent testing. But we need to see testing in this like document, especially 
if we want to get high contact extracurricular indoor activities up and running again, because if not, we're going to be forever in this kind of state where it's not going to be running anymore. You know, Ryan, you've looked at the numbers here, and you've been very helpful today to give us some perspective on what's going on here. Uh, there are other jurisdictions globally right now that, that have sent kids back to school. Some of the southern states, of course, they start in August. Uh, and we've seen in every other jurisdiction, including Israel, uh, where the numbers are rather startling, there's a spike. And, and they've told us here in Ontario there's going to be a spike because again, the kids are going to be going back into a classroom environment. We're going to see more new cases than we're probably used to seeing over the last little while. Uh, so they said this is inevitable. Are we setting ourselves up to fail, though, because we haven't put all the proper protocols in place to defend against that? Oh, yeah, we absolutely are. I mean, this plan is very similar to the plan that we had last year. In fact, I'll be honest, reading through this plan, there was nothing that I saw in this plan that we couldn't have implemented last September. Nothing. And the fact that a plan one year or, sorry, a year and a half into this pandemic still has solutions that we could have had last September just shows there was no creativity put into this document at all. It's simply a list of cheap and easy things to do, relying on hygiene theater and increased sanitization, which have next to no impact on COVID-19 transmission. I, I'm looking at the uh, the news conference from, uh, I guess it was Monday now, with the public health officer, Teresa Cam, of course, who was Canada's chief public health officer. And, and Dr. Tam basically said that we're in a race uh, to get enough people vaccinated before a fourth wave starts to overwhelm hospitals and schools, for that matter. She understands the severity of this and the magnitude of the problem here. I, I'm getting the sense here that the government is either whistling past a graveyard here or they just don't get it. Yeah, and I'm not sure exactly what it is. I mean, the like data is very very clear when we didn't have the delta variant you need 70 percent of the population vaccinated in order to start to remove things like masking and social distancing right now ontario is at 61 percent but we don't have the uk variant we now have the delta variant and with the delta variant that increases to around 80 to 90 percent of the population needs to be vaccinated before we can start to remove restrictions and unfortunately i don't think we're ever going to hit 80 to 90% of our population until we get the under 12 population vaccinated and until we start to mandate vaccines for certain things like going out to the grocery store, indoor dining, things like that. We need to start to mandate vaccines because if not, we will never hit that 80 to 90%. We'll never be able to go back to a world where we don't have masking, where we don't have physical distancing because I think COVID-19 is going to be around for a very, very long time, especially if most of our population is not going to be vaccinated. And we're starting to see that happen in a lot of the southern states. Florida comes to mind uh, where they're starting to see huge increases now in, in, in these new virus because they've simply said they've, we're opening up. We're going to pretend this thing never existed. Alberta's being accused of doing the same thing. I hope the numbers aren't going to be as bad in Alberta as we've seen in places like Florida, but you just don't know. It just seems as if we're, we're just kind of assuming that, you know, the worst is over. And our experts are telling us quite the opposite. I, I just we got a minute or so left here. You've heard the story. I just want to remind our listeners in New York, we're going to talk about this a little bit later on. Amir de Blasio is now says, saying, look, at, uh, if you don't have proof of vaccination of both shots, uh, you can't go into restaurants, you can't dine indoors, you can't go to gyms, you can't do anything. And, you know, he says, I can't make you take the vaccination, but we can say if you don't have it, you can't do this, this, and this. Uh, it's France has done the same sort of thing. Uh, so it's not as if the, the, the protocol is not there. It's not as if those options aren't there for government. It's not, a, it, I guess it really comes down to here in Ontario, do the governments of the day have the courage to actually enact those things? Yeah, and I certainly hope that they do because vaccines are available. 
vaccines work, and we're lucky to be here in Ontario that even without uh, you know a re- requirement of vaccination status, we still have a high proportion of our population being vaccinated. And I think that's what we can build off of that. And if we have some of those restrictions in like, play, we can reach the population that is like unwilling or unable to get vaccinated. Well, uh, we'll see just whether or not the government's going to respond to this. The numbers are rather troubling, uh, and they're starting to, to become more troubling on a daily basis. Ryan, it's always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much. Uh, stay well, and we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. See you later. Have a great day. Take care. Ryan Imgrud, a statistician who's been analyzing uh, the data that uh, we have seen. And uh, you'd think that the government has seen the same data, too. They don't seem to be responding to it the way that a lot of people would like to see them do that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The chances of a federal election, of course, are... Uh, imminent uh we're expecting the prime minister to make that call any time uh and interestingly enough uh, a couple of the political parties were actually looking for star candidates uh don't forget there's also a provincial election coming up less than a year from now so uh we're going to be in election mode one way or another to uh give us some insight into what's been happening uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program sabrina nanji sabrina is the founder of uh, Qu- the queen's park observer uh sabrina great to have you back in the program hope you're doing well these days hi bill hope you're keeping safe uh, so far, so good. I was still working from home, as uh, most of us are, I guess, these days. And we'll wait and wait and wait and see what's going to be happening. Uh, and, and the pandemic is going to play a part in the elections, but so also are, are the candidates in situations like this. And, and there's a story that you put up uh, uh, the other day on uh, Queen's Park Observer uh, about the, uh, the Liberals going after a star candidate. What's that, what's that all about? Yeah, that's right. So um, here in Toronto, uh, actually St. Paul's, it, it kind of midtown Toronto, it's yeah. a, a liberal stronghold. So we've all been waiting to see who the liberals are going to nominate provincially to run for them in the election next year. Um, and I actually got my hands on some internal documents that said, uh, you know, it's going to be Dr. Nathan Stahl. So he's a, he's a pretty prominent doctor. You know, uh, he's on the science table, which is probably how a lot of people know him. We've heard a lot of his advice. Um, he's frequently, you know, in, in media, reporters. We, we talk to him all the time just to get his expertise. And now he wants to run for the Liberals. So that's making that's been making waves here at Queen's Park. I've always wondered about that because, uh, and I mean this with all respect, uh, a number of these brilliant doctors that we have here in Ontario have, have become media celebrities uh, because of this. And, and Dr. Stahl certainly is one of them, Dr. Bogosh, uh, Peter Uni, so many other folks like that. And I always wondered if any of them were going to parlay that into something. And Because we know that uh, Dr. Stahl has been very opinionated, shall we say, about the way that uh, the governments have handled some of this stuff. Uh, and clearly he wants to be a voice in that. That's, that's interesting. Now, uh, because the Liberals in that same area, well, downtown Toronto, I mean, in the federal by-election, of course, they ran Marcy Ian, uh, TV personality, uh, and, and she won. She's she's uh, now sitting in as a member of Parliament. So th- they seem to, to lean that way towards the, uh, the the star candidates in some of the downtown ridings. But this uh, is a pretty strong uh, Liberal area for, for, I guess, provincially and federally, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, provincially right now, St. Paul's is represented by the NDP. But yeah. the last time in 2018, there was a vote. Uh, you know, the, the liberal candidate just lost by, you know, about a thousand votes, which, you know, considering how many people turn out to these elections, uh, you know, they could definitely turn this turn the riding red again. Um, and you're right. It, it is interesting to see some of our, uh, you know, doctors and, and health experts uh, about them wanting to 
maybe jump into the political side of things. Uh, in all fairness, Dr. Saul, I will actually be talking to him later today, so I'll, I'll be hearing you know his specific story. But I do think that he's certainly been outspoken, um, you know, as a member of the science table, you know, saying what he's seeing the, the science pointing um, him to, and, and you know, especially in a pandemic, you know, everybody. Everybody's got their input, um, and I, I do think that it, it's very interesting to see that w- them wanting to jump into the political side, maybe you know having some sway on the on the policy side of things. Well, and to that point, and, and as we mentioned, a number of people because of the pandemic and the government's actions, and, and of course our responses to that, uh, a number of folks that have have really kind of elevated themselves when it comes to public perception. Uh, one of those is Harvey Bischoff, who's been a, a, a regular guest on this program. Of course, he's the past president now of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, and uh, I, I'm hearing uh, from uh, your sources uh, now uh, that uh, he's going to throw his hat in the ring. That's right. Yeah. So he's uh, he's poised to be acclaimed. Basically, he's running unopposed for the nomination, so he, he's uh, going to get it automatically. But he'll be running for the NDP uh, in Brantford Brant, and that's another riding that was very close in the 2018 provincial election. Uh, you know, less than a thousand votes there. I think it was around 600. Um, currently represented by a progressive conservative, Will Boma. But obviously, the NDP thinks that they can they can flip this riding as well. So, you know, Harvey, uh, very high profile, very outspoken. He's never been shy to, to say what he thinks uh, the government's doing or not doing, you know, uh, conservative or liberal. You know, we haven't had too many NDP governments in Ontario, of course. <laughs> uh, but but Harvey, yeah, he was he was up there with leader Andrea Horvath yesterday, you know, fully supporting her. They're, they're a team. He, he's uh He's a very high-profile candidate. I think he definitely has a, a chance uh, to definitely give the PCs a run for their money there. All the years you've been covering politics, Sabrina, what's your read on this? Do, do the celebrity candidates, and, and again, I, I say that with respect to people that have already uh, created a, a name for themselves and a reputation for themselves in, in another realm, in Mr. Bischoff's case and Harvey's case, of course, it was uh, with some of the concerns that he had about the way the government was handling back to school or closing schools and things of this nature. He was in the news almost every day as a result of that. Uh, but does it work uh, when you run a high-profile candidate like that, like a Dr. Stahl or a Harvey Bischoff, uh, does it give Give them an advantage over the other candidates. You know, I hate to say stay tuned, but that's really just <laughs> how how it usually uh, how the cookie crumbles when it comes to elections, right? Uh, name recognition obviously goes a really long way, uh, but these guys aren't the incumbents, right? Like y- you obviously recognize your own MPP's name, so so the person who's already got the seat already has a, a pretty big leg up in, in that sense. Um, I do think it, it says a lot about the parties themselves. You know, the Liberals they. Uh, they're a very small party right now at Queen's Park, at least. Uh, you know, they have they have a long way to go to build up uh, their their war chest uh, and and their their campaign. Uh, and so it, it says a lot to have a, a high profile candidate and someone who is you know re- respected uh, as Dr. Stahl on your side and and even with Harvey as well. So I think uh, you know it, it's really good news for both the opposition parties here. I'm sure we'll be seeing uh, you know a couple more PC star candidates coming out soon too. The closer we get to the vote next June, but uh, you know at the end of the day, it, it's really up to the local voters and who they want representing them. So it's it's no it's no walk in the park for these guys. They're going to have to, you know, put boots on the ground and really talk to people who are going to show up for them. 
Yeah, because one of the main reasons, and I've found this time and time again when we talk to voters or potential voters with these elections coming up, uh, a lot of them are still leaning more towards party politics than they are about individuals. You know, they may like so-and-so running for any particular party, but, you know, while I've always voted liberal or I've always voted conservative or I've always voted NDP, and I'm not really going to change now, uh, and they rather vote for the party and the leader of that party rather than the star candidate. So it's going to be fascinating to see just how effective it's going to be. And, and I, I agree with you. I think as we get closer to the provincial election, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. I think we're going to start looking at people that's going to have high profile. They always talk to us about name recognition being a key element to this because, let's face it, uh, uh, you know, people get electioned out pretty quickly and they don't do a lot of the research that we, a lot of us would think they do. And they, the, a lot of them I've talked to, and I know you have over the years too, Sabrina, they said, we haven't made up our mind until we get into the voting booth. And, oh, yeah, Sabrina, yeah, I know her. Okay, bingo, you got my vote. Uh, so it, I guess it can be effective, but as to how effective it's going to be, uh, well, I think your, your phrase is probably right. Uh, you know, let's wait and see what happens. No, you're right. You know, between Doug Ford, Andrea Horvath, Stephen Del Duca, they've, you know, a lot of people are, are opinion on uh, opinionated on them one way or the other. Um, you know, some people uh, don't really know Stephen Del Duca that well, and and those that do, you know, he's got a lot of political baggage. So I'm I'm sure that you know, uh, maybe in that case, <laughs> knowing the leader might might. Uh, work out to your advantage or not uh but i do think that yeah the, the leaders are gonna we're gonna see them on the stump we're gonna see them shaking hands uh now that restrictions are lifting it's just gonna be a full-on campaign mode let me ask you uh, just if i can dovetail into what happened yesterday and i know mr del duke the fin- the uh, education minister is making another announcement of some description today uh what's your read on on, on this, the protocol for back to school uh, which is something that harvey bishop was very very vocal about of course uh you know we as we know here in ontario uh head schools closed more than any other jurisdiction in north america uh during the first couple of phases of this pandemic and there's some people right now including some folks on the science table i'm sure dr stall is one of them uh feeling as if uh, well these guys don't get it they still haven't really nailed what we're supposed to be doing here uh, is is the government going to get raked over the coals again for this policy um it seems like that's already happening a little bit you're right uh you know the way that it was rolled out, you know, it's kind of happening in this two-parter. There's there's another technical briefing for us reporters, actually. Uh, just a little later this morning, we're expecting the Education Minister Stephen Lecce to come up with, you know, some of the, the funding uh, details of this. Uh, it was really just a document given to not even all reporters, you know, just select reporters uh, at first. And so it obviously leaves a lot of questions. And when you when you have that, you know, whether you agree with what's, what's in the plan or not, uh, the specifics of it, you know, when you have a lot of questions, you, you don't have the minister up for, you know, almost 24 hours to answer them. Uh, it makes for a bit of a messier rollout, not the greatest optics. Uh, and so I, I do think that, you know, we've, we have seen that with this government time and time again with the rollout of these announcements. Uh, it, it was a very long time coming. Uh, you know, school is less than five weeks away. So I do think that, you know, the, the rollout probably could have been done a, a little smoother. But I think in terms of the plan itself, what we have seen and, and what we do know so far, uh, I, I think, you know, it, it's been somewhat mixed reviews. The opposition parties, the critics, some of the more staunch advocates, uh, they're saying that it doesn't go far enough. We needed more on ventilation. We, we might hear more about that today. Uh, and, and, you know, smaller class sizes, that sort of thing. Um, but I, I do think that some that some points are, are getting uh, applauded, like like the masking. That was one uh, question. I think that uh, you know the, the Ford government they're taking a more ca- cautious approach than we've seen in some other areas, and that uh, no one wants a fourth wave. So I think in that respect, they're definitely getting points. 
But isn't that what got us into the mess in the first place, is they did things in half measure? <laughs> I mean, that's a, I, it's, sometimes it comes down to, you know, you, you can't really please everybody in this, and obviously not everyone's going to be happy, but I do think that they are, uh, you know, in, in keeping the masks anyways, at least in that point, I know a lot of people were worried that they were, uh, you know, going to have them removed and that a lot looser restrictions in that sense. So I think that they are being cautious with the masking. Um, I know a lot of people won't be happy about that one indoors, but I think that they're playing it slow and steady, at least in that case. Yeah, the, the vaccination or lack of mandatory vaccinations, I know, is a very contentious point. Uh, yeah, and, 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 and I know when you guys finally get to, to have a discussion with the, the education minister later on today, uh, you, you probably all got a list of about 25 questions just based on the information or, or what information they did release yesterday as you say still a lot of questions about uh, what might happen and you know what if the numbers spike do you close the schools again uh there's a lot of things going on right now so uh it's going to be a rather interesting and i would imagine lively session when uh, when the education minister steps to the podium and starts uh, talking about what uh, is going to be happening here because there's still a lot to be answered here uh i, I guess we, if we're scoring at home here sabrina uh at least you know they rolled this program out i think about two weeks earlier earlier than they did last year going back to school. It was late August when they finally came up with the protocol there, and uh, that was a major concern. I, I, I agree with you, though. I don't understand. Uh, you know, they, they closed the schools down in May, and they've had a long time to work on this. You know, I always wonder why they wait until August until they're actually going to do this. It's almost as if it's too late to, for anybody to respond or react to this or, or develop a plan B. So it's going to be interesting to see just how they – I guess the word a lot of uh, folks that you're in your Queen's Park Bureau are asking right now is, how do you justify this policy? How do you justify what's going on? That's one of the questions I'm sure that Minister Lecce is going to have to answer today. I mean, it's going to be entertaining. I can't say uh, the minister is always the best at, you know, getting getting to the point or, or, you know, answering questions to a level that we would all like. But we're sure going to try uh, and get some of those answers from him. Do you get the sense, because the, everybody was asking, June next year, by the way, is the next provincial election. Uh, that's set, carved in stone. Uh, there's no way the, the premier is going to go earlier. As, as, you know, it's not a, a need for that right now. He's got a majority and things are humming along nicely, although he's not really doing as well in the polls as he probably wants to. But is COVID still going to be the issue heading into that election? Um, I, I do think that, you know, I, I mean, at least I personally, I hope that we are in the clear by next June and we have a bit more of a normal election. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm really tired of the pandemic. Like I know a lot of people are, but I, I think more what will be on voters' mind is uh, the recovery and, and how we got out of it. I think that's sort of what is becoming, you know, top of mind now for small businesses. I, I know the Ford government in particular, you know, they, they have a whole ministry, a whole minister in charge of small business uh, and on that file. So it's obviously something that's very important to them. And, uh, you know, they've lost a lot of small business support uh, throughout this pandemic uh, because of some of their measures and restrictions and things that could have been handled better, I think, for, at least definitely from a business perspective. Um, but but also, you know, the, the, the Liberals and the NDP are, are trying to woo that, that group, too. So I think that th there's definitely going to be uh, a lot more uh, focused on, on the recovery, how we got out of it. You know, if people are uh, feeling safer, you know, if uh, people are in a better place, uh, you know, with their mental health, those sorts of things. I think that's going to be the, the issues that, that are really top of mind for people. 
Well, we'll be following your reporting on this to see exactly what's going to happen and how the Premier and the Education Minister are going to respond to this. And uh, we'll see who else uh, throws their hat in the ring as we get closer to the uh, the provincial election, uh, which is happening. Uh, if you want to get some information about this, just uh, Google Queen's Park Observer, and they'll give you the link to, uh, to find out exactly how you can uh, get all the information that's happening in Queen's Park. Sabrina, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this. Stay well, and uh, we'll talk soon, Hope. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Sabrina Nanji was the founder of Queen's Park Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Earlier this week, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and uh, President Biden had a phone conversation as to exactly what they discussed and how deeply they got into some of those subjects. Well, that seems to be a, a matter of conjecture uh, because we're getting a different story from Washington than we are from Ottawa on this. Uh, Karen Rebo has the details. The two G7 leaders spoke yesterday about COVID-19, border restrictions, even sports. But a readout of the call from the Prime Minister's office says Trudeau and Biden also called for the immediate release of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver. The two Michaels have been detained in China since December of 2018 and the quick fallout from the detention in Vancouver of the financial head of Chinese tech giant Huawei at the behest of the U.S. The White House readout says Biden condemned the Canadian pair's arbitrary and unjust detention, and he pledged to stand strong with Canada to secure their release. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. Well, that's uh, gratifying to know the president is on side and supports uh, what's going on here. With, uh, the question is, what's going on here? Uh, and can the U.S. actually be of help there? And what about th- some of the other, I guess the word to use here is discrepancies about what was discussed. Uh, the prime minister's office talked about uh, you know, unilateral trade agreements and things of this nature. Uh, the White House didn't even mention anything like that. Uh, but is that really just a matter of different messaging that's going on? Let's uh, bring Elliot Tepper into the conversation. Elliot, of course, is an emeritus professor of political science at Carleton University. Uh, Elliot, great to talk with you again. Hope you're doing well these days. Doing fine, Bill. Nice to hear your voice and hope things are well with you. So far, so good. We're doing pretty well at this end of the, the thing here. Still doing, working from home, but that seems to be the new normal these days. Uh, the the Toronto-Trump-Justin uh, Trudeau relationship was uh, uh, tenuous at best uh, for a, a lot of reasons. We saw that, and there's a great expectation that things were going to be much better when Joe Biden became president. And and I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that they are right now, but uh, is it naive of, of people to suggest that, well, because... It, you know, they, they, there seem to be a, a mutual respect there that they're going to agree on everything because that seems to be what some reporters and some columnists are looking for right now. Yes, uh, there is a huge change in tone, clearly, uh, from Trump to Biden in terms of Canada and Trudeau. They, Biden, you should remind yourself, Joe Biden has strong ties to Canada. His first wife had, I think, family on our side, and uh, mm-hmm. he, <laughs> he jokes that... Uh, his boys, when they were young, had spent so much time in Canada that when asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? They say, we want to be Mounties. <laughs> <laughs> and Kamala Harris, uh, as you know, her mother was at McGill. She spent a lot of time in Canada. Yep. But the temperamental alignment, of course, is very strong. We have two leaders now who are very much in sync in terms of their central values, in terms of their worldview. But... To expect that there's not going to be an ongoing set of bilateral, uh, let's say, issues, if not irritants, uh, there's always going to be bilateral issues between these two very strong trading partners, the the strongest in each case. Remember, we're number one, and and so are they. For we're, we're in our economies and our societies, and I think Biden opened up uh, his uh, his conversation with Canada by saying, "Hey, we're family." And so that is a whole lot different than Donald Trump. 
Mm-hmm. And and there are going to be some disagreements on on some key issues here, but uh, I, I guess, and I'm not trying to justify what either one of the sides are doing here when they set these press releases out, Elliot, because there's there's always going to be some political spin. You know, the the White House is going to give their take on this because they know that there's an American audience that's watching, and similar to what's going on here in Canada, and the Prime Minister's office is going to take that into consideration when they issue press releases. So uh, whether or not they talked about the women's soccer team beating the Americans, it, it's that's superficial stuff. I mean, I'm Maybe it did come up, maybe it didn't. I know they talked about the Stanley Cup bet that they had, which, of course, the, the president won since uh, Tampa Bay won the Stanley Cup. So smoked meat as a result. Exactly, so Montreal smoked meat, which is a nice prize, by the way, for anybody who's ever had Montreal smoked meat. But the more contentious issues and the more meaty issues, if I can use that metaphor uh, with Montreal smoked meat, are, are things like uh, the Line 5 pipeline, like uh, trade agreements, like uh, uh, Buy America and the impact it's going to have on Canada. Those those are the, the, the nitty-gritty issues right now. And uh, there's going to be some, if not disagreements, at least some variations on those policies, isn't there? Yes, and I, I think because the discussion in the media is all about the discrepancy and how it's reported, uh, there's no particular reason for the United States to report Line 5 or uh, the other issues you just mentioned. Uh, Joe Biden does not want to put in his press release. And by the way, it was a readout. So I, I think I'm, I'm checking with my some colleagues uh, in the in the. Uh, diplomatic service, because readouts normally are different than press releases. But in any event, the main point here is that Joe Biden has no reason to bring up the Canadian position is we want exemptions from Buy America. He's not going to put that out in his press release. Of course not. The same on line five. Uh, I, I wonder, because our conversation may go in other directions, the one area in which both press releases, they're actually readouts, actually concurred specifically was in the area of the release of the two Michaels. Mm-hmm. It's now 968 days, uh, and in every conversation, as far as I know, that uh, Trudeau has had with Biden, this has been raised, and the fact that there's at least that one consensus statement in the two readouts, I think, is a good sign. But is there any progress being made now? And you and I talked about this a few weeks ago, I guess, uh, before my holiday. That this is all going to be done back channel anyway. There's not going to be any grand announcement, nor is there going to be any negotiations in public about this. Uh, but get, does the Biden administration have the ab- capability and the ability uh, and the wherewithal to to actually move the yardsticks on this? Well, it is their request. <laughs> yeah. And it, but and it and it is about Iran, and Biden has an Iran agenda. Uh, so you could put all that together and say, well, yes, the U.S. Um, and I want to back up a bit. Having the president of the United States say again and again publicly with Trudeau, we care about this. I think that carries weight all by itself. We we shouldn't underestimate that. But in terms of action, and the fact that the United States has not only stated it wants action, but Tony Blinken has talked about this, and it is an extradition request by the United States, uh, which Canada is honoring. It's now in our court system. I was just reading this morning. Uh, yes, uh, the initial round of discussions, the legal discussions, may be drawing to an end. Remember, it's you know, <laughs> very long time ago, no, 968 days at least. Uh, this this case has been in our courts. Apparently, that phase is winding up. But if you read the articles about it, well, with appeals and other things, it could go on for several more years. Depending on what goes on with uh, Huawei and a, and a number of different things like that, which I, I know the Chinese government says that the two issues are not really related, but they are. Oh, I think they we are. all understand no, that. That's another interesting thing to me, standing back from it. 
and I've said this before with you, here the United States and and, and uh, talking about this bilateral discussion, we just we, the subject matter of today's conversation. Uh, Joe Biden basically has made it clear in this bilateral talk that really he wants to clear the decks to deal with China, and uh, he also wants to create jobs at home. So he wants to have the supply lines broken with China. He wants it done at home. And he wants union jobs at home now as well. And it's up to Canada to convince on our side, uh, the United States, that we will join in that effort, basically. But in terms of um, where this is going, the, the fact that Joe Biden is leaning in on this issue uh, shouldn't be underestimated. You know, our ambassador to, to China spent three weeks three weeks quietly in the U.S. not long ago. So some, some kind of a deal must have been worked on then, but it has not come to fruition. This continuation, therefore, is, uh, is, is what we see. Let's talk about messaging, if we could. And, and you talked about, for instance, the, the, the cross-border trades and the Buy American policy, which is a concern to the Canadian economy, certainly. Uh, and, and, and Biden has to create this perception, and I, and I think there's a lot of legitimacy to what he's trying to do here, Elliot, uh, to show that America is that I'm standing up for you and, you know, we want the American economy to get back on its feet and, and we'll do what needs to be done. And this Buy America thing is part of this. I mean, the Obama administration adopted that line. It's not new. It wasn't a Donald Trump thing. It's, it's been going on for quite some time. And, and as you mentioned, it's also bipartisan. It's not a Democratic thing or a Republican thing. It's an American thing. Uh, but my understanding is that... Uh, you know, they're, they're apparently in the, the revised NAFTA that's already on the, uh, the right. books, which the, Biden supports. Uh, there are some loopholes there that Canada could take advantage of, but they're not going to make a big deal out of that because it's going to make Biden look weak, and I don't think they want to do that. Yes, these, we're getting into very technical trade areas. Mm-hmm. I'm a political scientist. So, but uh, what happened under Obama, he, he had you know, the same Buy America, but Canada was able to negotiate a carve-out so that we were exempt. Mm-hmm. And, and remember, that was the Obama-Biden administration. Yep. It doesn't look at the minute as if Joe Biden is going to do what Obama did, although that's really up to Canadian negotiating skills now. The uh, NAFTA agreement really gave Canada a lot of confidence. And in January, when all these issues started to come up again, uh, we have a deputy prime minister who's finance minister, but who carried the the lead under NAFTA, and uh, Christopher Freeland said, we shouldn't worry too much about this. We know how to negotiate with Americans over Buy America, but that was in January and February. Now there's trillion dollars, trillions really of dollars floating about, uh, and Canada really does, does not want to be frozen out of there. So all of the skills that Canada developed to negotiate with Donald Trump over NAFTA, quite successfully, ultimately, because he, Donald Trump wanted to also turn his attention to China and said, okay, let's get this NAFTA thing out of the way. We need a North American uh, unity facing China. That skill set and all the statistics which showed just how many jobs are created in America and how good it is for the American economy to be working with Canada, this now takes on extra weight when there's a lot of extra money about to flow because of the... Um, infrastructure plans and other build back better america that donald uh, that uh, joe biden is working on
And, and we also know that there are other voices in those conversations. We know that a number of the border states uh, that yeah. rely very heavily on cross-border traffic and, and trade between uh, provinces in, in those states are, 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 are lobbying the president and his administration to, to loosen things up just a little bit. And that may happen. It may not happen. But it's not going to be a big announcement. It's just going to be things are going to be happening, I would imagine, like that. And it's the same thing with the Line 5. I mean, we already know that Biden has a concern with pipelines. And Line 5, the Canadian government certainly wants to, to maintain that. Governor Whitmer in Michigan doesn't want it. Uh, but, you know, why would they weigh in on something like that? They've already stated what their positions are, and it hasn't reached the crisis point yet uh, as to what's going to happen there. So that that's probably a future discussion. I'd, I'd, I'd be surprised if any of them weighed in on it and said, here's the definitive policy on that at this stage. Yes, Line 5 is unfortunately um, going to be linked to Keystone XL, I'm yeah. afraid, in terms of how can Canada negotiate? This was a campaign promise by Biden in terms of the XL. And that was interesting to me because there was union support on both sides of the border to carry that on. It was still canceled, even though union jobs were involved. Yes, what I was alluding to earlier, and you've reemphasized, is there's a lot of support on the U.S. side for being sure that these, uh, these economic measures are not going to disrupt the economic relationship, the close interrelationship between Canada and the U.S. There's, there's just, again, Canada really developed its skill set <laughs> and is working with that. There is actually a formal conference of northern governors on this, and they are weighing in. There's a U.S. Chamber of Commerce and, um, and lots of NGOs. There's, Canada has learned how to press its case. There's also, that's, this is beyond my skill set, the WTO rules come in. So for some of this, we're protected under WTO anyway. I'm here, I read about, but uh, others were not. In terms of NAFTA, maybe we'll get some protection there. But no doubt about it, uh, Joe Biden's um, Buy America is really America first. He's not America alone, unlike Trump, but uh, there, there's definitely economic implications. Canada has a job ahead of it to uh, be sure that this new phase of Buy America uh, can be worked to our advantage rather than disadvantage. But to that point, uh, it's got to be reassuring, I would imagine, uh, to both sides, uh, that there's a foundation there of, of, of trust and respect yes. that you can start those conversations right. with. And it's not as if, oh, God, here he is on the phone again. How am I going to handle this? Uh, there's a there's a, a relationship there that it's, is, is a good start for this. And like you say, it would be naive to suggest that they're going to agree on everything or capitulate on any of these issues right now. They're both going to have some stands on this. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to negotiate with somebody that you respect and, and have some feelings for you know and understanding the 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 importance of the relationship between the two countries and the previous administration didn't really show that no the i think part of the job for canada now is to say we understand joe biden of course we've got your domestic concern and the union jobs and so forth and we we can deal with that in our normal way but if your real concern now is that supply chains that have really bolstered china and worked to the disadvantage of the rest of the world, including the U.S., if really this is ultimately all about, not all about China, all about jobs and China, we can be helpful. Canada can help you on what we know is actually your priority here, creating jobs and creating sufficient supply chains inside what is a North American uh, environment. There's Mexicans involved in this, too. Maybe mm -hmm. we'll have another Three Amigos meeting sometime soon. But I think it's up to Canada to make the case now that 
jobs and security in China are interrelated in a way in the, Chi- in the American mind where we can really be helpful. And I think that would be helpful to us. Elliot, as always, thank you so much for this. Great having you back on the program again. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Bill. Take care. Elliot Tepper, of course, Emeritus Professor at uh, Carleton University in Political Science. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.